Welcome, comrades and friends. Tonight we're going to talk about the international socialist movement and the birth of the communist movement and the splits in the communist movement. So we said, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way people want to look at it, I'm open to everybody's view of this, but I think splits are dangerous. I think they're counterproductive, in my opinion. That's just my opinion, and I try to avoid that. But the history of our movement seems to be splits. And we went through the split from the Socialist Party. The splits in the Socialist Party over the war, support of World War One, and the support of the Bolshevik Revolution. Now we come to 1919, when the Communist Party throughout the planet is basically organized. We split from the Socialist Party. It wasn't only here. It was in Russia also. There was a split in the Russian Social Democratic Party between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. So that was the beginning of a split. And Lenin gives his reasons why, and I know there are comrades on this phone call tonight who will support that. So the first split came, in my opinion, it's the one between the Bensheviks and the Bolsheviks and the resulting split around the world between those who supported the revolution in Russia in 1917, Bolshevik Revolution, and those who didn't. Then came the issue of Trotsky. That was another time of split. People can give reasons for that. I think my opinion is that there were three tendencies in the movement. One was Stalin, who I consider, my opinion, was in the center. On the left was Trotsky, and on the right was Bukharin. The first split happened over Trotsky. That was in 1928. James Buchanan, who was in the leadership of the party, had gone to Moscow and had come back from the meeting of the Comintern and supported the small, small minority group led by Trotsky. It was James P. Cannon. Thank you, Comrade. Thank you. James Cannon, not Buchanan. James Cannon, right. And that issue had its effect in the party here in this country. They formed a group called the Socialist Workers Party. Their newspaper was called The Militant, and they called themselves the Left Opposition. That was the first split that we seem to have had. I just want to mention their positions historically as the years go on. I came across them during the anti-Vietnam War movement, and their position then was very interesting. They were calling for unity between the two forces in the anti-war movement, the peace movement. There was a group led by liberals and reformed Democrats and pacifists, and the Communist Party was with them at that group. And that group called for negotiations, and they formed a coalition against the war. It was called National Peace Coalition. That was the exact name. The other group, they were called the National Coalition for Peace and Justice. The Socialist Workers' Party led the other group, which was called the National Peace Coalition, and their position was out now. But the point is, at that time, their anti-Sovietism really did not surface. My experience with them at Wagner College in Staten Island, I didn't see it. I didn't see it at the time. But from that period of 1928 all the way up to the present, they have always taken a position against the Soviet Union. And the reasoning they gave that it was a deformed workers' state, a deformed workers' state. They were always in positions, they even formed alliances with A.J. Musty, who was a pacifist from a religious background, and they formed a group called the Workers' Party. 
And that was in the early 30s, if I'm correct on that. It was, it was the late 30s, actually, comrade. The late 30s, thank you. Now, that party itself split, and it split in 1959. Now, remember, there were a couple of splits, but the major one was in 1959 when a group led by Sam Marcy, Sam supported putting down the counter-revolution in Hungary in 56. And in 59, the Cuban Revolution was a key point in the birth of the Workers' World Party, which is what they became known as. Their newspaper is called Workers' World, so they've been around something like 68, 69 years. Their position during the Vietnam War, their group, their youth group is called Youth Against War and Fascism, YAF. And they had helmets at the time. They used to come to the demonstrations very militant with helmets, but they weren't the same as the anarchists. The anarchists were breaking windows of banks at the time, those of us who remember this, and they caused the police to come in and actually to destroy the anti-war protests at the time. People concentrated on the broken glass of the bank and not on the Vietnam War itself, why the war was going on. That was in 59. They split about nine, ten years ago, and the split off from them is called PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Their newspaper is called Liberation. And what I find similar with those two parties is that they hide their Trotskyism. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. The early issues of Workers' World, it's very interesting. They had a big picture on the front of Leon Trotsky, and they didn't hide their pro-Trotskyism. As the time went on, they took that off, that picture, and they didn't talk about Trotsky anymore in their newspapers, both PSL and Workers' World. In fact, when I went to the offices of Workers' World and Deidre Griswold, who is still one of the editors of their paper, I had approached her to go to a conference in Canada that Michael Lucas was leading North Star Compass, was the name of the magazine, which was excellent. It just recently is just online now. It's no longer in print. They just do it online. When I went to ask her to come, she pointed to the books in the corner. There were books in the corner. She says, we come from different backgrounds. She said, he wants to build a Stalin international, and we come from a Trotsky background. And that was as early as 1993. That was what they was telling me. So when your push comes to shove, they'll actually tell you what they are when push comes to shove. Now, that was one group of breakaways. Another group of breakaways internationally and in the party in this country, I think it was in 1959, over the same year that was the split between the two parties, the Soviet party and the Chinese party, the issue was revisionism. That was one of the splits, and it had to do with 56. Khrushchev coming out with his anti-Stalin speech. So that split happened in 59. It was led by Milt Rosen from New York. He was the district organizer of the party in New York. And they formed a group called PL, which first was a tendency within the party called Progressive Labor Movement, PLM. Then it became Progressive Labor Party, which still exists today. And their newspaper is called Challenge. That's their newspaper. Then internationally, when Mao started to form alliances with Nixon and the United States in the 70s, people in that tendency left that and followed Albania and Vojoja, 
in Albania. And they looked at China as reneging on their anti-revisionism, is one way to put it. And that group had a couple of small groups in this country support them. They all had the name ML after their name, ML for Marxism-Leninism. They didn't really amount to anything. They seemed to, whether self-destruct or the government was involved with their destruction. And that was, to this day, I think there is no real party representing them. The closest, I would think, is a group that calls themselves APL, American Party of Labor, and they're strictly online. They have one or two groups, I think, around the country, one in New Jersey. They may have, which I don't know about, but they didn't have a publication printed. I saw a copy of something that came out of them at a meeting on the November anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Manhattan. I don't know if that's still going on. So that's another split. So we had a split to Trotskyism, a split to Maoism, and then we had something called the New Left, which I think was, to me, was dangerous. It came out of a political philosophy of a gentleman named Herbert Marcuse. Uh, and I believe he was a French person, if I'm not correct. Uh, he's and German. German. Thank you. And his, he has a son, by the way, who's involved with political stuff, who has the same view as the father. Okay, what was their view? One of the things in the United States that followed that kind of view was something called participatory democracy. It was in a group called Students for Democratic Society, SDS. Now, there's a group called SDS today, which is not the same as the SDS I'm talking about. They call themselves the New Left. Also out of that movement came the Black Panther movement. It was considered by many of us at the time the black version of the SDS, which was also New Left. Why do they call themselves the New Left? They wanted to distinguish themselves from the old left. Who was the old left? The old left was the Socialist Workers' Party, the Communist Party, Workers' World Party, all of those that came out of Marx and Lenin. So they considered those the old left. And they were very anti-old left. However, their prime philosophy, and this is why I had gotten involved when I was 18 with them, their prime philosophy was a book called Containment and Change. I don't know if anybody has ever read it. It's very interesting. Basically, it was an attack on anti-communism. Now, these were non-communists who were attacking anti-communism. They said anti-communism was a problem, a pain in the American psyche that would bring us to war, would brought us to war in China, in Guatemala, in all these areas, in the 54 on Guatemala, in Indochina. So they attributed that to the American, it was psychotic about communism. So these people were anti-communism, and I thought that was a very good, refreshing start. But they were not communists themselves. That was the new left. I'm going to stop there, open it up to questions. I have a chronological timeline question. Shouldn't we talk about what happened to the Third International first, which was the official common term, before we jump into the 60s and into the 90s and trying to rebuild just the common turn without any fourth or fifth things afterwards? Okay, yeah, that's a good point. But since I, as soon as we finish these questions, we'll go back to that. You're correct. I apologize. Would you characterize the Party of Communists USA as a new left or old left party? And also, would you consider it a 
split? Good question. <laughs> first of all, the first question, I would definitely consider it a continuation of the 1919 party, which was what the new left called the old left. By the way, the bourgeoisie called it the new left and the old left. And we seem to have followed the tags they put on. We can look at it another way. What I consider the Party of Communists a Marxist-Leninist continuation or something new. That's one question, and I gave you the answer. The next question, a split. Now, that could be looked at in several ways. We had a split in 1919. We had splits later on. If one wants to look at it as a split, I would say we're a split going back to the beginning. We're a split going back to the original philosophical and political foundation that Lenin set forth. That's what I, or a return, you can call it a return, but it depends on semantics, how people word it. Because you know the Germans consider us a split, comrades, the German CP. So it's a good question, but that's the way I would answer it. I just wanted to say that we have to also address what was going on in mainstream politics in the Democratic Party, because we also had this factor of DSA, which was also once part grew out of the party, and the left wing of the Democratic Party that was being blocked by the more corporate oriented. So it wasn't, it was yeah, in our entire political culture that this was happening. It wasn't these left groups. Speaking about a split, I mean, look what happened with the That's Socialist true. Party in Germany. It had stopped. It ceased being a real leftist party. Even voted for war in World War One. And by the time that people like Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg had separated, it was too late. So even in the Bolshevik party, early, very early in the party, there had been a split. And she would really call it a split if we are the ones who represent the true socialist ideology and not the people who have basically... The leadership who usurped the leadership Yeah, position. yeah, they have a leadership who's, who's usurped the ideology. I don't think that we're split. I think that they split from us. Okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. I agree that it's very important that we look at ourselves as a continuation of the CPUSA. I mean, that's one of the reasons I was enthused about joining. The other thing I hope you discuss quickly is the rise of the Maoist movement, for example, like the RCP, Revolutionary Communist Party, which is basically a cult, but it came out of the RIM-2, Revolutionary Youth Movement 2. RIM-1 was the weatherman. RIM-2 was kind of in between. They all came out of SDS. I was a member younger years of RIM-2. But anyway, that's how they developed. It started with the Bay Area Communist Union. And then eventually the Communist Labor Party, not the one in the 1919, but the one around... The one in Chicago in the early 70s. Yes, that's it. I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. Oh, that's good. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's important that some of the groups that came out of the new left started to go back to Marxism, basically, like you mentioned some of the groups. Yeah, I just want to say something in terms of the so-called new left. What I think there was a reaction that was on the whole healthy against the fact that particularly with the Vietnam War, a lot of the old groups, whether it was the CP, the SWP, or whoever, 
did not take up any kind of militant attitude against that war. You said one group was pushing for negotiations as opposed to just withdrawal and so on. So there was a movement. Now, I wouldn't consider the SDS and the Panthers exactly the same. SDS was mostly among white petty bourgeois students at a lot of universities, including a lot of the elite universities. The Panthers came out of the ghetto, and they were originally more around police brutality, although they certainly took up the question of Vietnam. But the problem was that many of the groups of the so-called old left, I don't really like those terms very much, had not taken up any kind of militant positions. And SDS and all of these groups They were very new. They really didn't have much of an understanding of Marxism. More and more, some of them were leaning towards trying to get an understanding of Marxism, but it was a reaction to the weakness of some of these old groups. Just one other thing in terms of splits. I think we have to distinguish between principled splits and unprincipled splits. When the CP split from the Socialist Party in 1919, that was a principled split because the Socialist Party had betrayed the principles on which it was founded. When PCUSA formed, it was because the CP had betrayed the principles it was founded on. And so those splits were principled. If you take another example, like between PSL and Workers' World, I think there were very little political differences. It was mostly a matter of personalities and who would be the leading force in some of the different mass movements. And that kind of split, I don't think is good. But we have to distinguish between principled and non-principled splits. That's a good point, Comrade. Very good. It's just a footnote to what you just said. I was in Alabama in the 60s and part of SDS. They also had SSOC there. And we weren't anti-communists, and one of the big things we're always saying was, hey, they're calling us communists. Where are the communists? We need the communists. And then I found out later on, the people in New York had been red-baiting the young people up there. Young people in the party were being screwed over by Gus Hall, I guess, and the rest of them. I don't know. But anyway, that's my footnote. Out of all of these groups, has there ever been a group that's been pushing for any type of left unity? And is left unity even something that would be revisionist? Lenin was anti-factionalism. Yeah, that's the good question. I think that's a real good question. I think we're going to have problems in the future, even within our party on that question. I think there are some forces who feel that unity is the most important thing. And there are other forces who feel that carrying on the philosophical and and principled positions are more important than unity. It also comes down to the idea of, I think Lenin said it, I'm paraphrasing it, it's better to have better but fewer, that kind of thing. By better, he meant ideologically sound. So that's a good question. I don't have the answer to that, but that's a good question. On that point, I think it was Stalin's view that the Marxist-Leninist party the Communist Party, as the party was typically called, should strive for the broadest possible unity to create a broad democratic front of allied popular forces that included uh, liberals who opposed fascism, 
as well as the vastest array of well-meaning individuals and organizations that identified themselves as left. That was Stalin's view. At the same time, Stalin's view was that the party itself, the Communist Party that is building this broad democratic front of allied anti-fascist forces, that the party that is building this front and it is participating in the front must ensure that its own Marxist-Leninist integrity is maintained. So it is undialectical to say that it's either or, that it's either better, fewer, but better or unity. And I would remind the comrades that it was Gus Hall and the CPUSA that taught me that the unity is the most powerful weapon that the working class has. And the Marxist-Leninist party has to maintain its ideological integrity to fight for that unity on the broadest possible basis. And that's where the two concepts come into a dialectical unity. Okay, comrade, that's an important point to board out. Thank you. I wanted to bring up and read a quote from a book by Herbert Marcuse to kind of show how sort of strange their outlook is and how it really, in its essence, pretends to revolt against reality itself. This is from Herbert Marcuse's An Essay on Liberation. It says, The aesthetic as the possible form of a free society appears at that stage of development where the intellectual and material resources for the conquest of scarcity are available where previously progressive repression turns into regressive suppression, where the higher culture in which the aesthetic values and the aesthetic truth had been monopolized and segregated from the reality, collapses and dissolves in desublimated, lower and destructive forms, where the hatred of the young bursts into laughter and song, mixing the barricade and dance floor, love play and heroism. And the young also attack esprit de Syria in the socialist camp. Miniskirts against the apparate chicks. Rock and roll against Soviet realism. <laughs> the insistence that a socialist society can and ought to be light, pretty, playful, that these qualities are essential elements of freedom, faith in the rationality of the imagination, the demand for a new morality and culture, does this great anti-authoritarian rebellion indicate a new dimension and direction of radical okay, change? Comrade. Okay, you made your point. To me, God, I show my age. I would call it poppycock. That's older yeah. than me. Poppycock yeah. means it is BS. It's almost like so intellectual, so deep, that the masses of people that work for a living will just shut off when they read something yeah. like that. I feel like even on a deeper philosophical level, it is also pretty flawed, too, because it has this implicit bias against anything that is orderly. I'm glad you brought that up. I hope other people understood what you were trying to say. I think the problem that arises for the splits and contradictions in the West is that in tonight's class presentation, Lenin set up 21 preconditions for any Communist Party or progressive movement to join the Third International. And I think the cornerstone of his precondition was that any movement that wants to join the Third International must accept the dictatorship of the proletariat on a global level. So as long as you do not have that, you are bound to fall into those kinds of splits and contradictions in the West. And most of them historically have happened in the West, not in Asia or Latin America. The splits 
are mostly products of bourgeois societies that the left in those countries are infiltrated by bourgeois ideas of humanism, like the dictatorship of the proletariat is not necessary. The transitions to socialism can take place in the so-called advanced industrial and civilized nations without the dictatorship of the proletariat. So I think those are the splits are caused by those kinds of sentimental views about the dictatorship of the proletariat as defined and limited by Lenin. And it does not seem to me that the people in the West are accepting the dictatorship of the proletariat as a transition to socialism. They interject their own personal and petty bourgeois ideas about the dictatorship of the proletariat and distort it and gloss it over. So I think the West has not come terms with the Leninist idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's a good point. That separates a lot of the groups. The dictatorship of the proletariat, which Lenin has in the 21 points, you will not find anything like that in the new left, the SDS. And it's not only the new left then. The occupied movement that we just recently went through, that was infested, is the word I use, with that kind of new left mentality. When they ran meetings, they didn't discuss things and then use democratic centralism the way communists do. What they do is they'll talk something to death for four or five hours. Who's ever left, because they're tired, they have to go to work, some of them. Whoever's left in the circle gets their way. So if there's two people and they started with 300, those two people get their way. And they use what the word is consensus, which communists never use that word, consensus. I never heard Lenin talk about consensus, for example. So that's the difference between the dictatorship of proletariat, the concentration on the working class, most of the groups came out of the universities of a higher economic level. There was a woman in the SDS office in New York. First name was Patty. Her last name was Duke. And it finds out that she came from the Duke estate family in New Jersey that got all their profits, their millions. I think it was in energy. And she used to come with these boots. She looked like a model. She used to come with these boots. And you find that people play revolution, comrades. And in today, uh-huh. look around on the Internet. You have the same kind of thing, playing revolution. That's what they do. And I think that's what we have to distinguish our party from all these other parties. That's why we're discussing this. I think we have to be serious and we have to be responsible. Most of these other groups aren't. They're really not serious. They're really not responsible. They don't believe in organization. They don't believe in the machinery that they believe is individual contribution to a cause. They're big on martyrism. I'm a martyr, that kind of thing. And one of their love affairs with Comrade Che is not that he was a revolutionary, but that he died for his beliefs. That's what they're big on. And their definition of revolution, Comrade, is very similar to the Revolutionary Communist Party. If you look on their website, they talk about revolution, revolution, revolution. But there's no adjective in front of it. What kind of revolution? We want a socialist revolution. They never use that word in Revolutionary Communist Party. And it reminds me of Hitler in his time. He called his group 
a revolutionary group and that he was going to have a revolution in Germany. As communists, we call it, in fact, part of a reactionary counter-revolution. We look at the French Revolution, uh, reason, the scientific movement as a revolutionary movement, and the Nazis then, like some of the pro-Nazis today, are against science, are against the French age of reason. The question is, during the common turn, and history looks at it as two periods, the 20s and the 30s. And in the 30s, it was a popular front period. I feel that that's what our party should go through, that kind of period. A popular front period was the period in which the party grew. Not only here, and everywhere else, in France, in Italy, in Spain, in Greece, it was the popular front period where we led a multi-class movement against fascism, and we seemed to be good at that. Before that, we were in what some people call an ultra-left period. I want you to know that. I don't know if other people agree with that, but that's what I've seen historians call it. The period of the Trade Union Unity League, the T-U-E-D-E-L, Trade Union Educational League. So the point I'm making is, how did this common turn, which brought parties from all over the planet together to strategize together and to fight the capitalist class on an international level, what happened that that dissolved? I think that's a valid point that should be discussed. How this happened, why it happened, was there an attempt to bring it back? As stated before, our party supports the Soviet Union from Lenin all the way to the very end, till the day the hammer and sickle was lowered. However, that does not mean that we don't, and I don't scientifically place criticism where criticism is due no different than we would criticize Cherenyanko for something he did and Dropoff for something he did. The dissolution of the Comintern, in my opinion, was a huge strategic mistake by Stalin, whether for good or for bad, that was done by a single stroke of his pen. But after he did that, because he said, I don't want to Bolshevize the world, which is what Hitler is saying. So he says, I'm going to turn this thing off to kind of appease the bourgeois allies. He turns it off, doesn't restart it. That opens up a huge can of worms, because all those 26 rules were basically rules that just outright prevented revisionism. If you didn't follow those rules, we can work with you in a united front, but you can't be a part of this common turn. With the common turn and the rules gone, each of the communist or socialist states were then allowed to literally go their own national way, and they all began to put their own national interests above the international revolution. The main thing is that allowed the capitalists to strangle each country off like a boa constrictor because they didn't have to worry about any internationalists coming to help them. I think you have to also include the fact that while this was happening at the top, also, I guess like a petty bourgeois class was forming, especially in the Soviet Union, kind of a professional petty bourgeois class that was going in the wrong direction. 
going in a different direction than socialist. The abolishment of the Comintern in 1943 was a historic necessity at the time brought on by World War II in order for a second front to be opened up in Europe. Basically, all the other Allied countries were just waiting to see who was going to win, whether the Nazis or the Soviets were going to win. And in order to get aid to the Soviet Union and by opening up the second front, they had to abolish the common term. They had to get away from the idea that aiding Russia was aiding world revolution during World War II for the survival of the Soviet Union. Thank you, Comrade. That's a good point. Maybe right. I'm really not sure. I've looked at a number of things about why it was dissolved, including public stuff and stuff that was not public. For example, Dimitrov, who was the head of the Comintern, has a diary where he discusses that it was dissolved but doesn't really go into reasons for it. I think you also have to take two things into consideration. One, in the middle of World War II, it was not really able to function because there was some countries were under fascist rule. They were not able to have meetings. They were not able to coordinate, except in general supporting the anti-fascist struggle. And second was that shortly after World War II was over, there was formed, it was not quite the same thing, but there was formed the Common Forum, Communist Information Bureau, which basically grouped together leading communist parties in Europe, both in Eastern Europe and France and Italy. So there was a revival of it, and one should also remember that Khrushchev dissolved that somewhere around 54, 55 or something. I think that what we touched upon bears a very striking relevance on certain questions that we may have as members of communist parties and as members of a global movement ultimately that is internationally disjointed at the moment and that while there are connections being formed around the world, we need to bring into question what the principles of these organizations are and how we can interact with them in the future as these orgs, which we are doing, in order to produce a more fruitful and internationally connected movement. Thank you, comrade. My background is in classics. Classics is Greek and Latin, and Lenin said that the dictatorship of the proletariat is a Latin historical scientific term. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even know that. Thank you, comrade, for that information. I want to thank everyone for coming to the class tonight, and I hope everyone has a good night. Thank you all so much.